Are you glad to be here this morning? Last night I was watching uh, my Ohio State Buckeyes play. And I was just praying for God to pour it out on that sorry team. And uh, I was thinking while I was watching them lose and, until they turned it around at the end and won, Lord, please don't make me have to go to church tomorrow and preach if the Ohio State Buckeyes lose, Lord. I don't know. I don't. And he, he was faithful to deliver them. And uh, so we're here today. Um, and I don't know if you've noticed, speaking of revival, I've revived the mustache. Some of you right now are just trying to get your bearings, like who was that guy up there? And I revived it last Sunday. Every week, I kind of let it grow out into the weekend. And then on Sunday afternoon, I kind of shave it down. That's my pattern. And so I shaved it down and I was looking in the mirror and I shaved everything but my mustache and it was looking at me and I was like, hey there, how you doing? <laughs> and we just were talking to each other there for a little bit and I thought, I think my wife was going to really like this. So I came out of the bathroom and I turned to go around the corner and she was in the living room and I came through and I gave her the smolder like, hmm. And she was like, and I know what that means. It's you look so hot is what that I that's my interpretation of it um, anyway. So, yeah, we, we got the mustache going on this week. And my son, Joshua, came into the a uh, few days ago, came into the bathroom and I was kind of trimming it down, kind of getting ready for the week. And he's like, Dad, you look like a Mexican. And I don't know if he knows what a Mexican looks like, but apparently I look like one. And I am not a Mexican. I'm, I'm Spaniard. So this is a Spaniard thing. I'm like a matador up here this morning. So and I, I got my burly jean jacket to kind of fit the look. There was something about coming into the fall, coming into autumn. It's like, I want to look a little bit more like a man. You're like, yeah, but you hairsprayed your hair. Eh. I'm getting there. It's one step at a time, okay? So good to be with friends here this morning. When I think about coming to church, I don't think about coming to dead religion. I, I think about seeing your faces. I think about seeing my friends. I think about coming and just kind of hanging out, seeing your smiling faces. So I've been looking forward to you showing up this morning. We want to talk about, in our Stardust series, the topic of life groups. I have talked about this. I was telling Ryan this morning, probably no less than 27 times, 27 messages on this. And sometimes you give messages because they're just deep in your heart and they're just ready to explode and spill out and splash on other people. This one I give every year because it's important. It's a value. It's something that I've said redundantly over the years, and we're going to keep saying it, that the church actually is not supposed to just be in rows. It's supposed to be in circles. And as our church gets grows larger, it has to grow smaller in smaller contexts of people. Life groups are critical for that. And revival can be thought of as an emotional thing, but really it's just as much devotional. And the foundation of, of revival is when people are getting together and they're close enough to each other to kind of meddle with each other's lives and to encourage each other and spur one another on. Revival doesn't happen with a bunch of churchgoers going to church once a week for an hour. You do know that, right? Like the world doesn't care about that. Satan is not really, he didn't even get out of bed this morning knowing the church was going to church. He really gets worked up when the church wants to be the church. Amen. Going to church is just nothing. 
I've done that my whole life. The real growth in my life happened when I started meeting with other guys, one-on-one, one-on-three, six of us gathering early in the morning, talking turkey about our life, our hearts, our marriages, our ups and our downs, the kind of men that we wanted to be, the kind of Jesus that we wanted to chase after and emulate. That's where it got good. That's where I started growing in my faith. In fact, I wouldn't even be in ministry if in college my freshman year, a guy by the name of Ted Boykin didn't come into my life as my dorm dad, grab another four guys and say, hey, you guys wanna meet together and have a Bible study. I'd never been in one of those before. I was 18 years old, and he poured his life into us, would stay up late into the night with us, talking about our hearts and lives. It was the first time I ever opened up to anybody about sexual sin in my life, that secret sin, that hidden sin, and I felt like I was comfortable enough with Ted Boyk and my dorm dad, this big six-foot-eight black guy, and a bunch of us guys, and he came in, and he opened up about his past, and I started to go there. And going there saved my life. So I'm about life groups. My first life group actually here at Impact, I was thinking about this, um, had four guys in it. Jim Nora, had Marcus Burton, had Dave Talcott, and it had, I don't know if you know this other guy, Ryan Kresge. So Ryan, I, I didn't know very well. We didn't grow up together. He started coming to our church. Ryan was in that group. He worked for McGraw Construction as a project manager. And we started connecting more and more in that life group setting. Who would have known in that group of four guys that you invest in the dividends that that would pay to this day to be in that group? And you meet guys, you become friends with them. And Ryan Kresge now is our executive pastor, my right-hand man here, has been hired on since 2012 in the church. Marcus Burton, who was a part of that group, is now the vice chair of our leadership advisory team, the elder board in our church. Those two guys are my right-hand guys. It started in a life group in Backwater Cafe where you're tipping down into the river, right? It's where it began. And your investment in these things, you have no idea the dividends that that may pay into the future. I remember after one of our times together, it seemed like a me time where we didn't really talk about a whole lot. We didn't really get into anything special or specific, and it didn't really go deep in my mind. I remember talking to Ryan afterward. This is when he was just my buddy. Um, that I was just getting to know. I was like, man, it just didn't seem as interesting today. And sometimes I want the life group time to be just more full and exciting and interesting. And he, he said this to me, we expect the spectacular in our friendships, but real growth happens when you're simply sharing life in the simple and mundane. I remember him saying, I'm not here because this is gonna be awesome every week. I'm here to make friendships. And we're in a culture where if the friendships aren't like spicy and don't keep spicy and novel, we just boot, move on to another friendships. Have you ever been barfed out of your seventh friendship because you're not interested or interesting anymore and everybody's trying to stay interesting and stay interested and you're trying to do all of these things to keep people's attention? That's not friendship. I spent some time studying God's word on life groups, and there was something in the early church particularly that I was looking at that fascinated me this week. After Christ died and was buried and rose again and then ascended to heaven, in the tomb where he was buried, they actually kept a candle lit for decades. The place, they placed that candle in the tomb of Christ. 
that was kept perpetually burning and the candle would be used to light other lamps that were taken from the tomb by the early church into people's homes where they would assemble as the church. I, I thought, this is, this is so cool where they would come together. Some church traditions still do this. It's called the lighting of the lamps in church tradition. And they would go and they would light their lamp and they would take it from the tomb and then they'd bring it to their home and they'd meet with a small collection of people and they would celebrate the risen Christ in their midst and the living God that was still alive. The believers worshiped with that lit candle in their midst. They were reminded of the resurrected Lord, the everlasting spirit of Jesus that brought his body back to life, never to be snuffed out again. And as they gathered together in homes, they would sing what was called the Fos Hilleron, the oldest hymn in the Christian church from the first century. They called the ceremony, the lighting of the lamps. The Fos Hilleron is, the word means gladdening light. And this is the hymn from the first century sung by the early church, the apostles. Hail gladdening light of his pure glory poured, who is the immortal father, heavenly blessed, holiest of holies, Christ Jesus the Lord. Now we are come to the sun's hour of rest, the lights of evening round us shine. We hymn the father, son, and Holy Spirit divine. Worthiest art thou at all times to be sung with undefiled tongue. Son of our God, giver of life alone. Therefore, in all the world, thy glories, Lord, thine own. 2,000 years ago, they would go, they would light their lamp with the light perpetually burning in the tomb and bring it to their home and meet in small pockets of people, these life groups, the church that would meet in homes, and they would celebrate our Lord the early church, they were actually called keepers of the flame. This is what happens in the context of life groups. You become keepers of the flame of our Lord together. Another historian, theologian called them story keepers. In a time where they didn't have all the scriptures written out, they would keep the story of Jesus alive and the story of the early church alive for their kids and their kids' kids. So the generation, through oral tradition, would hear about this flame of Christ that lived the light of the world, and they were now lights of the world, stardust in the universe. This is why we believe that breaking up and being in small pockets of people is so important to keep the flame of Christ burning brightly in our hearts. In Acts chapter five in the early church, verse 42, it says day after day, the early church were in the temple courts and they met there and from house to house, they never stopped proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. We cannot lose the ethos of just gathering in the temple courts or the synagogue or the church building and think that's enough. Every day they would meet there collectively together with a large multitude, but then they would break up and go house to house and proclaim the coming of the Messiah. It's something you can overlook as you're reading through the scriptures, but the churches met in homes. In Romans chapter 16, verses three and five, it says, greet Priscilla and Aquila, my coworkers in Christ Jesus. Greet also the church at their house. Church isn't a building. They didn't cram a building into their house. They crammed a group of people. We never meet at impact. We meet as impact. And 
I want you to know something. The church is not a person. The church is a people. It's plural. You're like, I went to church. I was out in my tree stand hunting. No, you didn't. That's not the church. The church is a people that gathers together. And in this case, in Holmes, Colossians 4.15, give greetings to the brothers in Laodicea and to Nympha and to the church in her house. Nympha was like, you know what? My house is open. I want to start a church there. And a small group of people would gather there. Philemon, verses 1 and 2, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, to Aphia, our sister, and to Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church at your house. The church met in the house. Did you know your, church, your house could be a church? That you can open your house to a life group of people, and the church can gather there, and you can light the candle... Maybe this is what we can do this year for, for life groups is everybody just get a candle and light that candle and say, Christ is here. He's risen. He's alive in our midst. And we are the church. We're not just a life group. We're the church meeting in our house. That's why Paul, when he was proclaiming, this was decades later in Acts 2020. Some call this the 2020 vision of the church. I taught you publicly and from house to house. So decades later, Paul had heard about this ethos that started with the Fos Hilleron and the, the gladdening light and the lighting of the lamp ceremony. And he was like, I want to keep that going. After decade after decade, he would meet publicly in public squares and, and speak to the multitudes. But that didn't stop him from going house to house so that he could get to know people personally and relationally and intimately. That's what the church is meant to be. Not a dead, dry institution, but a living organism. Yes. It will either become an organization or it will stay a living organism. Amen. And the organization to organism is all about, will it be a big group thing? A large context where multitudes come and gather and are not known? Or will it ever get to something more intimate that's house to house? This was the early church. This is our origin story, church. We deviate from this. We deviate from the power of the gospel itself to our peril. Because Paul didn't just gather in a large group and preach to a crowd, he got to know people as he sat in a circle in their living rooms He'd been in homes with them, shared meals with them, laughed with them, cried with them, traveled with them. He did life with them in these cell groups of people. And then he wrote letters to these churches, seven churches in all, to stay in touch with them and encourage them. We must remember he didn't see the church as a building or a service that you go to. He saw it as small collections of people who would gather in homes to share resources, to pursue Jesus, to read scripture, to have accountability, and to experience life together. In fact, as you read about the church, there's four different Greek words that come up when you talk about the church. The first is ekklesia, the most powerful and, and prominent word that's used for the church. And ekklesia means an assembly or a gathering. This is what this is today. The church, the ekklesia has come together. And then they would share koinonia. Anybody have koinonia groups in their church growing up? Koinonia is the word for fellowship or community. So some of us will only ever always know the church to be an ecclesia. You gather to church one hour a week and then you go home and you don't think about it again. You leave unscathed every week. But some might come to the big church experience and have a little bit of koinonia where there's some fellowship where you said something to somebody and they said something to you and you got to know somebody. Even at a cursory level, you're beginning to partner together and have fellowship together. It's partnership. 
But then it goes down to a word that's used for the house that we read before. It's oikos, it's home, it's household. It's, it's something that you go to and it's in a home. And oikos produces this last one, which is philos, where we get Philadelphia, and that's friendship. My parents, and they would say this if they were here, they were at Ecclesia all the time and they enjoyed koinonia. They would go to, to Sunday school classes and they would go to all these classes, but most of the things that they went to, even Sunday school classes, how many of you grew up going to Sunday school class growing up? Really cool. They were meant to sort of break down and have more Bible study. Most of the time, Sunday school classes in most contexts is a deacon or a teacher that again, teaches people and you sit and listen. So you would go to Sunday school class and someone would teach you. And then you go to Sunday morning service and someone would teach you. Then you go to Sunday night service, which was a worse version of the Sunday morning service because the pastor didn't have enough time to prepare a good sermon. But you'd hear another sermon on the soothing Psalms or something. And then you go to Wednesday night and so many of the prayer meetings, the pastor felt it was it behooved him to preach another message and then have a little bit of prayer at the end. It's so much teaching. They enjoyed assembling and fellowship, but my parents were not allowed to meet in homes and life groups in their church for fear that they would spread the gospel incorrectly. Only the pastor could teach the people and then wanted the people to stay away from each other so they didn't talk about the scriptures. And so sort of apostasy couldn't happen or heresy couldn't happen. And what they forfeited, my mom and dad, is they died and had lots of friend fellowship, but they died and had very little deep, intimate friendship in their life. They knew a lot of people, loved a lot of people. They were known deeply by hardly anybody. And you can have ecclesia and koinonia and never have oikos and philos. In our church, we long for this to drill deeper into oikos and philos because we don't want just fellowship. We want friendship around here. Amen. As Paul grew to know and love these people meeting in those homes, he would often write them in his letters. And as they studied the small groups he connected with and the names of the people he recognized and described, I was struck with the difference between an assembly and a home, fellowship and friendship. Somewhat inspired last week by John's message. That guy's an inspiring guy, isn't he? Amen. And I love him going to 3 John and talking about these people and how they were described. And I was like, I just want to go through and read all the epistles and see all the people Paul brought up, that he knew their name. The capacity of our church growing will be the capacity of how many names we can remember. You do know that, right? If we cannot remember any more names, that will be the lid, and that will be as big as the aquarium gets. People's names, and, and beyond the names, them being described because you personally know them, it just it gives you the capacity to grow as a church. And he knew them and then would describe them and who they meant, who they were to him and what they meant to him. Started in Romans, the first book that he wrote in chapter 16, 1, he talked about Phoebe. He said, Phoebe is my sister and a servant of the church. That's what came to his mind when he thought about Phoebe. I love Phoebe. She's like a sister to me. This is what's really cool in the church is that I can't necessarily go, you know, take a trip up north with a woman in this church for a color tour this fall, right? Tell my wife, hey, I'm going 
with one of my sisters from Impact to go up north, and we're just going to spend the night up in Manistee and sort of enjoy the time. I, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to meet with a woman one-on-one -on -one once a week at Starbucks and chop it up into the intimate details of our life. But in a life group, you can be with men and women, and they can become your sisters. And men that aren't your husbands can become your brothers. She was a servant of the church. She wasn't a consumer of church. She served that body in her home. Romans 16.3, Priscilla and Aquila, power couple to Paul, always greeted me warmly. Don't you love when you go somewhere and they're like, hey, how you doing? We go to our life group and I see Tara over here. Tara's in our life group and we come into her house and every time we come into her house, she's like, hi, friends. Hi, friends. Is that a good impersonation, Craig? No, no. Hi, friends. It just is like you're just warm, greetly, you know, greeted warmly when you go in. You're friends. Appenitus, weird name. He was a dear friend to me, which is really big knowing who Paul was because I think Paul was known by a lot of people, but I wonder how many dear friends he had. I think sometimes when you see somebody that knows everybody, when you see somebody that has a little bit more notoriety and they're walking around, it's safe to wonder whether they have anybody that's dearly loved that comes to them and acknowledges they exist and treats them like a human. He's like, this guy was a dear friend to me. I, when I think of this, I think of Tom Ursh. He's just a dear friend to me. I just like the way he talks to me. I like the questions he asks me. I love how he listens to me. I love how he's concerned for me. There he is right there. That bald head glistening under that light right there. Yeah. How about this one? Mary, she worked very hard for you. Man, our church owes a great deal to the women who work hard in this church for people. Junius was outstanding among the apostles. He's like, man, you know the apostles, the 12 apostles? Yeah. This person was outstanding even among them. This person is just great. Andronicus went to prison with me. I was going through a hard time, and he sat right there shackled up next to me, and he was right there with me while I was in prison. You ever been in prison? You ever been in a dark spot, and somebody sat right there with you in that dungeon? Apelles has been tested and approved. I love that. He hasn't been tested and found wanting. This guy was tested. He's the real deal. I love this. Rufus's mother became a mother to me. You not only get brothers and sisters at church, you should get moms and dads at church. I came in this morning and Sandy back there, she just has the, she has just the stature and the heart of my mom and every Sunday she comes up to me and gives me a hug. I'm sorry if I hold on inappropriately long, but I just love, you just feel like Philena Gladys Holdridge to me. And you're just like a mom to me. And then, you know, Cheryl, I remember when I lost my mom, the first weekend I came back, Cheryl Mast was like, I'll be your mom now. And Paul was like, I just I got a person, Rufus's mom. She's my mom too. 
You ever go over to friends' houses growing up and your mom stunk at cooking food, but you went to some place and she was like a mom to you and you just hung out? She treated you like her son. She was getting after you about different things. You, the, our home is your home. Yeah. Gaius, John talked about this guy showed hospitality and brought me joy. Do you bring people joy? Think of all this in the context of homes. You don't know people's names and what they're like unless you share life and do life with them. Stephanos devoted himself to the serv service of the saints. He was so devout. Fortunatus has always supplied what was lacking. Every time there was a void, he sought to fill the void. Every time there was a need, he was meeting needs. I love that guy. Achaicus refreshed my spirit and yours, who's so refreshing to be around. Titus has enthusiasm and shows initiative. That's great to find somebody like that when you're like, man, I need some enthusiasm on some days, and some days I don't want to take all the initiative. I like when they text me. Isn't it hard when it's like you're the one reaching out all the time and it's not reciprocal? It's like, man, is anybody going to text me, see how I'm doing? Anybody going to text me that they're praying for me? Anybody going to text me to remember I had a hard day yesterday? Or am I always the one doing that for everyone else? You know the ones that show initiative and have enthusiasm and they take initiative in your life. And he's like, that was the dude for me. Tychicus, he's a dear brother. And a faithful servant didn't have just the good sister in Phoebe. I had a dear brother in Tychicus. Timothy has a genuine interest in you. There's no one like him. Genuine interest. Epaphrodites risked his life for me and almost died. Man, to have somebody who risked their reputation for you to stand with you. Justice has proved a deep comfort to me. There's just some people you love to be around when life's going great, and there's other people, man, when life's not going great, they're the ones you want to be around. They're like the bomb of Gilead. They, they have this soothing presence, this peace they give you, and it's like, I want to be around them if I need comfort. Epaphras said he was always wrestling in prayer for you. I love wrestling, so that just is a powerful metaphor of like, he didn't just pray for you, he went to the mat for you in prayer. Aren't you glad that you've got people praying for you? Uh, Sherry was saying a couple years ago at this time, we had four people on our prayer team. How many people are on our prayer team now? 32 people on our prayer team in the last two years, praying over you, praying over this church, praying over people. They're up here after the services. They're here to pray for you. They are wrestling in prayer for this church. This church isn't great because I preach. This church is great because people pray. Keep wrestling in prayer. Onesiphorus searched hard for me and found me. Imagine having a friend like that. Gosh, I went MIA and everybody else didn't pay attention, didn't know what was happening. That guy came after me and he wouldn't stop looking for me until he found me. Did you know there's some people that are not going to come back to church unless you go search for them and find them and say, man, I haven't seen you for a while. I miss you. How you doing? We'd love to see you back. They're not coming back unless somebody searches for them and finds them. 
and hogs tie them on the back of their bumper and drags them here kicking and screaming. And to have people that come look for me is even powerful for me. That in some way we're all shepherds leaving the 90 and 9 to find the one. And then the last one he says, Philemon, Onesimus has become like a son to me and he is my very heart. Imagine getting that close to somebody. He said later on in that text, I'm sending him to you. Receive him as you would receive me. If, if you've met him, it's as if you met me. He is my very heart. I've become so close to Onesimus. So let me ask you something. How would people describe you in this church? Does anybody know your name? Do you know anybody's name, names? Have you gotten to know their stories enough that if you were to point them out, you're like, yeah, that person, I know them, and give a factoid about them or a little bit of data about who they are and drama in your life? What memory would they recall? I was thinking of different phrases that we used. Every time I think about you, I think about that one time you. That's friendship. I will never forget that time when you or I was telling somebody about you the other day and I told them that you, our world needs more of that. Yes. Not ships passing in the night that are just on our phones all the time, pretending like we're intimately involved in social things when we're not really connected to anybody while we're connected to everything. There's something powerful about knowing people's names. There's something special about recalling stories with each other. There's something beautiful about making lasting memories with people. There's something essential about knowing and being known by people. Knowing and being known by people. Back in February, I think it was, I had this idea the last year. I had a real heart for and been praying for a lot of our business leaders in our church, leaders and management, people that own their own businesses. And I had this idea that I would send out a text on Monday and Wednesday and Friday. The one on Monday was going to be running start. And then the one on Wednesday was going to be second wind. And the one on Friday was going to be called finishing strong. And I would give a verse and then I give a blurb. And I intentionally want it to be for people who come to church and don't come to church, something that you could share with your friend and it would be overtly spiritual coming from a pastor. So I just wanted it to be sort of non-religious leadership tips from the Bible. And so I started that all the way back in February and I was faithful about just getting up in the morning and sending that out. I think there's about 110 guys and gals that I send that to every week. And there was one day I woke up and I took a shower and I came back and I was late um, getting out. I was going to a breakfast meeting with somebody. I had the breakfast meeting and I got done with the meeting. I look at my phone and there was this message from a guy named Todd West. And he wrote this in his message. Jason, no second wind today? Everything okay? Praying for you and your family today. Now, now, I, I, I wish this didn't mean as much as it meant to me. Do you ever have something mean more to you than you wish it meant? That somebody knows the patterns of your life, is tracking with the patterns of your life enough to know you usually send it at this time and we didn't get it today. I just wanted to search and find where you're at. Is everything okay? We didn't get that. I just want you to know thinking about you today. And that's, that just takes community. That takes something beyond ecclesia 
and koinonia down to something that's more oikos to fill us. I don't, some of you weren't alive at the time, but um, remember Cheers? You know, and this little pub in Boston where they would come in, right? And that the theme song was sometimes you want to go where everybody knows your name. And they're always glad you came. You want to be where you can see our troubles are all the same. You want to be where everybody knows your name. And I'm going to tell you, coming to church on the weekends here, this isn't a place where everybody's going to know your name. But if you get in a smaller context, everybody's going to know your name. Be glad you came and realize all their problems are just the same as your problems. Remember the, the group I was talking about earlier on that met with you know, Ryan and, and Marcus and Jim Nora, who planted a church out of our church, and then Dave Talcott. I called him Sidewinder. He hugged me, and every time he hugged me, he kind of came in like this. I called him Sidewinder. But... I remember I had my birthday. I was born in 1974. Anybody else born in 1974 in this place? It was a good year. Yeah, right here. 1974. And so for our birthday, I got together with those guys, and he came in and went out and bought a 1974 bottle of wine. And he gave it to me. And the four of us partook. And it was disgusting. <laughs> Seriously, I don't know. It was wine left on its dregs uh, in a big way, but it was very meaningful, though disgusting to me. Beautiful and disgusting. I think we were like, ah, nah, that's, it's the thought that counts. Uh, that feels like it's been laying in a dank garage for about 40 years, right? But afterward, he, he wrote a note to me, and it said this, you're Mr. Chardonnay in a world of men that are a bunch of two-buck chucks. I don't even know what a two-buck chuck is. I, I grew up Baptist. Um, but I kind of got where he was going. Like, there's this, you're not cheap. You're special. Your choice in a world of cheap. Do you have anybody that just thinks about your birthday and what year it is and wants to do special things for you? That's friendship. That's different than Fellowship. It's what we want to foster at Impact. These smaller contexts where people are known, remembered, named, and befriended. Our theme verse for life groups every year is this, and it's going to be from here to kingdom come. First Thessalonians, where Paul was talking to the church in Thessalonica. First Thessalonians 2.8, Paul said this about the people. We love you so much, we're delighted not to share with you the gospel of God, not just life group curriculum and material that we have, but we share our lives as well. We gave to you the story of God, but we shared our story as well because you become so dear to us. This is the church. The reason the church is dying is because the church is ceasing to be this. And anybody can have a no-name, no-face experience of church by getting on YouTube and listening to really kick-butt preachers every week. They're all over the place. But you cannot go online and have your name known and your life known and cared for. And I'm sorry, your internet pastor's not going to come to your funeral and give you a funeral, and he's not going to be at your bedside when your husband is 
you know, has cancer. It's like that doesn't happen unless you're in a real living flesh and blood community of people that you're building into. Paul was like that because Paul was like Jesus. Jesus shared the gospel, obviously, with a group of guys, but he shared his life as well. He knew how to be with the multitudes and then break away with his group of dudes. It's about multitudes and dudes. And multitudes aren't your dudes. They're multitudes. Dudettes, if you're a woman here. In fact, the first thing that Jesus did when he hit the scene, if you look at the Gospels, is he found a, a small group. First thing he did. He didn't go out and start doing things and figure out. No, he went out and found guys and started a life group of guys, of 12 guys. He actually coined a phrase in Luke chapter 12 for this small group of guys. He called them his little flock. There's a flock of people, and I'm a shepherd of a flock, but man, I got to have a little flock. He said, hey, don't be afraid, little flock, is what he said to these guys. Do you have a little flock? This is a huge flock in our church, and it's going to grow bigger, and we love that. The church in Acts grew by 3,000 people in one day, and then they would go to the tomb, grab the candle, come out, and say, hey, you want to meet at my house? I know we met at the temple courts and the synagogue, but and you want to come over to my house because we're going to celebrate the risen Lord in our midst, and we don't want to just share the gospel. We want to share our lives as well, and we can't do that with all these thousands of people around. They did that. And Jesus even needed a little flock. There's been a verse that's been gnawing at me recently where Jesus said in the upper room to his disciples in John 15, 15, I no longer call you guys servants because a servant doesn't know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. Jesus wanted friends. He needed friends. It's interesting. I don't want to be master anymore, which is the word Lord. I don't want to be just your Lord. I want to be your friend. I don't want just lordship in your life. I want friendship. I don't want just a bunch of followers. I want friends. This is what Jesus is saying here. And he went out and he had interactions with that group and I just noticed, I read through all the Gospels this week along with the epistles. It was a lot of reading this week, but I wanted to reconnect with the ethos of the scriptures. The undertones of Jesus' everyday friendship with these guys was all over the place. The first one was probably the most powerful. He took a nap when he was with them. It wasn't like he was in entertainment mode and hospitality mode and, oh my gosh, you're here and I want to make sure I'm a conversationalist and the conversation doesn't die. Boy, it's been quiet a lot. Do you still want to be at my house? No, he's like, I'm going to go and I'm going to take a nap. You know you're with a friend if you're in the car and you don't have to talk and it's still good. You know you're with a friend if they come over to your house and they're like, they eat something out of your refrigerator and then they take a nap on your couch and don't apologize because they're dwelling with you. You're, you're their friend. You don't turn into entertainment mode like, like a dancing court jester and a, you know, some sort of a dancing monkey. You don't have to do anything to hold their attention or keep their attention. You've already got that. They have a genuine interest in you. Just dwell with them. Jesus could do that. He pulled away from the crowds with them. He'd be alone with him. He verbalized frustration with them. One time he said, are you still so dull? That's what you can say in a life group, right? 
He asked them to pray with him when he was struggling in the Garden of Gethsemane. He knew their names and backgrounds. He knew where they came from. He shared mountaintop experiences with them. He was filled with joy around them. He ate dinners with them around the table. He talked to them about tension in his own family. He was rejected by his own, and his own wouldn't receive him not in Nazareth. He asked them to join him in his sorrow. He debriefed life with them after the fact. He would cry with them over losing a friend. He went to the synagogue with them, went to church with them. He called them out when they acted up. One time said, get behind me, Satan, right? He made up nicknames for them, like, you're the sons of thunder. He changed Peter's name from Cephas to Peter. He knew these guys. He cared about their extended families, healed Peter's mother-in-law. He went looking for them when they left him. He asked them when everyone else left him one time, are you guys going to leave me too? These dudes, these 12, are you going to leave me too? That would break my heart. He committed to be with them more than anyone else and to share parts of his life that was reserved only for them. And he never apologized for cutting the group off at 12, even though others wanted in. You imagine being the 13th guy. I want to do it. I'll do the same thing. Nope, just 12. Because I want friendship. I don't want fellowship. I want friendship. His goal was friendship, and it still is. But it's the verse right after John 15, 15 that caught my eye. And I want to end here. It's John 15, verse 16, where he said, You did not choose me, but I chose you. Now, this is a huge theological thing, obviously, with Arminianism and Calvinism, whether you choose God or he chooses you. But just for the purpose of the verse before saying, I no longer call you servants, but I've called you friends. And you didn't choose me, but I chose you. Can we just kind of Imagine him talking to real human beings for a second, not a theological discourse that he wanted to have some sort of a debate about. I think the best groups, and I've noticed this in our church and in my life, are the ones that you choose, not the ones that choose you. Now, there's some that are going to come in here. We have signups and amazing offerings for men and women to sign up for a group to get involved in our wildfire series that's coming up in a couple weeks, and that's going to be great. But you know what? I don't want to get so into the signups, which are powerful for people that don't know anyone here, because I'm really encouraging you to do that. But there's some that came from other churches or, or in bleachers with people here, or you're in affinity groups, or you're in hunting groups together, or you like to go out and paint, paint, and you know, drink wine while you do paintings and all these weird things that I'm seeing all over the place. You have groups. Take the people that are around you and say, I choose you. Do you want to be in a group with me? And then just go out to the table and say, I'm starting a group. I'm going to go out and choose people to be in that group. Do you know that's actually how Jesus did it? He didn't put out a sign up and say, who wants to be my disciple? He went out and chose those disciples and said, I want you to be in my group. And it's only going to be 12 people. And he chose them. I feel like sometimes we, we complicate it programmatically in the church by like these arranged marriages that we, in, in a way, make for people to get involved with strangers in a group. And I'm telling you, you can, like me, accidentally get with a Ryan Kresge and you can get with a Marcus Burton and a Jim Norton and Dave Talcott and it can work. But you do know that you can, of your own volition, use your agency today to say, I don't want to be in a group with more than five people. Great. Pick the five dudes or gals that you want to be with or the couples that you are 
already know and do life with and say, do you want to do a group and go tell our table out there, I'm going to do a group. I want you to know we exist. And it isn't going to be like a guessing game or a rolling of the dice like a crapshoot. I'm actually going to go out and choose. They're not going to choose me. I'm going to choose them. And there's so many people in this room that won't get in a group unless somebody says you want to be in my group. In fact, we've noticed this even with high school students last year. High school students are asking this all the time. Is any, are any of my friends going to be there? They'll come as long as they know I've got some friends that are going to be there. Do you know adults are no different? Like, I'll go if my friends are there. If it's just a bunch of strangers, I, I don't know if I want to go. There's already social anxiety. So get some people together that are part of our church body that want to actually go through our act study, talk about it, get in each other's lives, pull them together. Maybe you've got like, I got six couples right now that come to my mind. We aren't in groups, but we could start a group. Start a group today and tell the table, hey, we're going to start a group. Can you do that today? Or maybe it's just three of you. I don't know what your number is, but I want to open the floodgates to you that you can do this. And it isn't about something being chosen for you. You can choose this and choose the people that you want to do life with. I remember I got an email. It was last year and uh, someone was just encouraging me about how they were cha- you know, changing in their life and how much this church meant to them. And they said this, Jason, you're a great pastor and all, but my life group is what really saved my life. And I love hearing that. It's the way it should be. So God, we just thank you for today. Just this kind of safari through the scriptures that we took today, just flying through the early church and just what made it pulsate with power, what made it so personal, where Paul could just state names and descriptions and just what he appreciated and loved about people, that they didn't meet just in the temple courts, they met house to house and they went and grabbed fire from the tomb of Christ and brought the lighting of the lamps right into their home and sang the Fos Hilleron together and just remembered the story of God. May we this year be keepers of the flame and all of these groups that are starting so that you can do your work in our heart and transformation can happen. Some people here have been sort of water skiing along the surface of Christianity and religion and church for a long time. Just hope they can get some scuba gear on and go a little bit deeper and get under the surface a little bit more because that's where the action is. That's where the adventure is. That's where life with you comes alive. That's where revival happens, where we come alive. And you can come to church and come alive, but you stay alive in a life group. God, do this in our midst as we come into this year. Strengthen our body with all these cell groups that come together that make up the whole. We give you all the glory. We want to live for you in our short time on this earth with all we've got. So give us the initiative enthusiasm to start what you started many years ago. We follow your word. We want to mimic it and emulate it in every way. We want to be like the early church. And we pray this in your son's name. Amen. Amen. Thanks for coming today. See you next week.